Okay, I think I'm getting the signal. Let's just start with a word of prayer. And there are a couple more seats, and you can go during the prayer like the music team does, you know. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help to be good thinkers and writers. We ask for your help, your grace, the illumination of your spirit, the fruit of your spirit, to be focused and faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been asked to discuss good thinking and writing. Whether I myself think good and whether I myself write well English, I cannot say. (laughs) I had a book proposal turned down recently, and I got the distinct sense it was because I just wasn't up to the level of snuff required by the brothers who were in charge at the publisher. They actually asked me to submit the proposal, and then they turned me down. (laughs) Uh, I was actually a little bit relieved because I felt like it was a very difficult topic and was going to stretch me. Uh, But that makes me feel like I'm not coming as a conquering hero, but as a servant who, like Gehazi, has swindled some goods from richer writers. And Ben Edwards, like Elisha, has found me out and threatened me with leprosy if I don't share those goods with you. So those goods will come spilling out in order, but I think you'll find that my thoughts are bulging a bit. I'm just tossing a lot of ideas into this talk, and I'm going to talk kind of fast because you are educated pastors, and we're meeting at a church affiliated with the seminary, and you came to get your money's worth. And who are you? Well, you're at a pastor's conference. You presumably have to write a weekly sermon with a hard Sunday morning deadline. You have to write Sunday school lessons and emails and devotionals and other things that matter to people, even eternally matter to people. And statistically speaking, at least one person in this room is justified in writing social media posts on controversial issues. I don't know who that person is, but statistically one of you is allowed to do that. So, How can you write and think better next year than you're doing this year? And what in the world am I, who am not a writing teacher and certainly not a thinking teacher, going to be able to say in the next bunch of minutes that will help you think and write well? Well, I'd better just get going with an opening illustration. There's a young Christian intellectual, her name is Elizabeth Brunink, and she now writes for The Atlantic. I got onto her when she was writing for The New York Times. She's actually devoted much of her writing career, and you can see this at The Atlantic, covering the cases of death row inmates. And it turns out that one of the premier moral themes that arises in that regular work of hers is that of forgiveness. Brunig actually has advanced theological training. She has an incisive pen, and she has two small children, all of which make her especially suited to discuss forgiveness. And I want to give a little illustration and an insight from her as I open this talk on good thinking and writing. You'll see why in 35 minutes or your pizza is free. Uh, Brunig writes, I'm going to read a fair bit from her. Suppose my children are playing together when my younger girl discovers a dress-up gown that she would like to put on. As she begins to shimmy it on, my older daughter notices it and decides that she would like to wear the dress-up gown. So she pulls it off my younger daughter and puts it on herself. In retaliation, my younger daughter pulls her big sister's hair demanding that her gown be given back. The scuffle summons me, the mom, and after hearing both of them recount roughly the same story, I lightly chastise my younger daughter for pulling her sister's hair, but then direct my older daughter to give the dress-up gown back to her little sister and strongly chastise her for taking it in the first place. From my older daughter's point of view, her little sister is having all the fun. Not only did she get the gown in the end, she got to pull her sister's hair and got little more than a gift for it. But this is because my younger daughter 
was operating in a state of moral exception. She was behaving in a state where the normal rules of morality, such, such as the general prohibition on pulling her sister's hair, did not apply. I would like her not to attack her sister generally, so I chastised her for it. But I clearly didn't rule against her, and she wasn't ultimately punished. In fact, she got what she wanted in the end. <laughs> you can imagine how tantalizing this loophole is to a child. It represents the opportunity not only to get what one desires, but the opportunity to indulge a darker, typically repressed desire. And the only precondition for doing so is being wronged in the first place. As you can imagine, she hit me first is something of a prized status among small children for this reason. <laughs> I just thought this was brilliant because I have three children as well, uh, which makes me an RUF minister, referee of unwise fights. <clears throat> and though I discovered that my wife, who's here today, I'm so glad she can be, and other adults and even certain children actually don't like the state of moral exception idea because then that means it applies to their siblings, the idea that the victim of unprovoked aggression gets a free pass, uh, you know, a free play from scrimmage, I still have to say as a dad, that resonates with me. I think I would have handled that hair-pulling situation the same way Elizabeth Bruning did. It resonates with me even though ultimately, theologically, I reject it. I actually do not believe in endorsing any form of personal revenge, ever. God said no. To take vengeance is to take something of his to steal a prerogative that can be entrusted only to a perfectly just person. No one else has a reliable scale for weighing out pounds of flesh. And the last person who can be trusted to do such weighing is the one whose dress-up clothes were just snatched. So I will observe, however, that what resonates with me in allowing for some revenge resonates with a lot of people. It isn't right to grant moral exceptions like this, but we do it. We give each other passes on certain acts of vengeance. I haven't actually watched these movies, but Liam Neeson, I'm told, has built a career on giving moviegoers the delicious feeling of living in a state of moral exception, where it's actually okay to root for revenge. Bruning goes on to suggest that these states of moral exception are equally attractive to adults. That is to say, knowing for a fact that we will hurt one another, nothing seems so clear-cut or obvious as that fact, is it possible that adults, too, are attracted to states of moral exception in which they can not only pursue projects of vengeance that would normally be socially proscribed, you know, prohibited, but also do so with full social sanction? In other words, the society is maybe going to lightly chastise them, but basically let them get away with it because they were hit first. And she says, I certainly think this is the case. And now we get to something of the point of my extended introduction. Here's Bruning again for the last time. She said, consider the state of social media, where people frequently go in order to find something to be angry about so that they can express their anger in ways that would typically be forbidden but are permissible in cases only of having been wronged. Have the social media user not sought out an example of someone doing something offensive or outrageous, they wouldn't have anger to discharge. But it seems to me that acquiring anger and the right to discharge it is precisely the point. Cable TV, she says, also offers you lots of reasons to get pissed off at people and yell at them. I apologize for my King James language there, but it could not be helped. <laughs> I needed that last sentence because it is profoundly pastorally true. Only this group would laugh that well at that joke because you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> when I heard Bruning's words actually in a talk that she gave, it's also up online, 
I was busy cleaning up rusty metal with an angle grinder. I paused, I took off my gloves, I stopped the recording, I took a note to help me find those words again. Acquiring anger and the right to discharge it is precisely the point of so much social media usage. I felt that is profound. Who can withstand such a delicious temptation? And it leads me to my thesis, which is an awfully fancy thing to have in a little breakout session, which is buried awfully deep in this talk already, but here we go nonetheless. If you want to write and think well, you must cultivate the most basic Christian virtues. I'm not preaching a sermon, so I get to pick my points. I can name the virtues that occur to me, though I admit here to plagiarizing a writer that I, that I respect. Those virtues are faith, hope, and love, just these three. And the greatest of these we will save for last. You might know the writer that I'm plagiarizing. Let's talk about faith. Good thinking and then writing has faith in God and sees others' faith in God alternatives. I find the role of faith in good thinking and therefore writing to be absolutely essential. And let me give another illustration. The Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas has become infamous worldwide for its hateful and extreme rhetoric. One of the granddaughters of the founder, Fred Phelps, her name was Megan, joined in that hatred and anger over her lifetime. She picketed funerals with her family, and then when Twitter came out, she took her message to social media. But unlike at funerals, people you attack on Twitter tend to talk back with equal or greater volume. And Megan Phelps discovered that some of her opponents could be gracious and even persuasive. She began quietly to think about the questions that her opponents asked her. She ultimately left her cultish group. I don't believe she's still any kind of professing Christian. That is a very sad part of the story. Not sure if she, I, I don't understand Westboro Baptist Church well enough to say if they have the gospel at all. An excellent book on good thinking that I highly recommend, which is called How to Think by Alan Jacobs formerly many years of Wheaton teaching English there, now of Baylor, wonderful writer, he said, I bet a large pile of cash money that thousands of people read the profile of Megan Roper that, I'm sorry, Megan Phelps, that's Megan Phelps Roper now, that he was quoting in his book that gave the same story I just did. And they thought to themselves, ah, a wonderful account of what happens when a person stops believing what she's told and learns to think for herself. But this is what Jacob said. Here's the really interesting and important thing. That's not at all what happened. Megan Phelps did not start thinking for herself. She started thinking with different people. To think independently of other human beings is impossible, and if it were possible, it would be undesirable. Thinking is necessarily, thoroughly, and wonderfully social. Everything you think is a response to what someone else has thought and said. Not to mention when people commend someone for thinking for herself, they usually mean ceasing to sound like people I dislike and starting to sound more like people I approve of. And that brings me to the first virtue we're going to discuss of the three, faith. You're never going to get away from the need for faith in specific people, that group of people you think with. It's the same as the famous line from C.S. Lewis, a man who jibs at authority, who kicks at the pricks of authority, must be content to know nothing all his life. Most of what we know, Lewis says, we know because reliable people have told us so. So a Christian epistemology, a Christian theory of knowledge of how we come to have justified true beliefs is unembarrassed about the faith that underlies all our knowing. There is on the one hand, a group of people we think with whom we trust as partners and even times, at times as authorities. That group extends beyond our time and place. 
to other teachers whom Christ has given to his church. But most importantly, we all are together, of course, unembarrassed by the faith in God that underlies all our knowing. Somewhere near the bedrock of our knowing lies a simple faith that what God says is indeed true. We, just, we don't just know stuff straight with no mediation. No, as the title of my rather moribund blog has it, drawn straight from Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand. Here's what the verse says. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The same truth that Paul says in Romans 1 that we can't not know, in other words, words, the divine origin of creation, the author of Hebrews says we understand, we know through faith. We understand through belief. This is why I'm a young earth creationist. I can't say that other Christians who don't adopt my viewpoint on this matter, like Vern Poythress, for example, who's someone I really respect and love. I I run his website. I, I can't say they don't adopt my viewpoint because they lack faith. But I can say positively that I'm under no burden to think that I'm gonna have to form major elements of my knowledge independently of my creator. <laughs> that I'm stuck with empirical methods of knowledge only when it comes to the origins of the cosmos. I expect to have to build a foundation for my knowledge out of cinder blocks provided by God. I could go on at great length about the role of faith and knowledge. Tim Keller has done this well in his apologetics, like the reason for God. There are even non-Christian writers who've done excellent work here, including Stanley Fish, who loves to talk about the role that faith plays in so-called secular spaces, such as his home space, the academy. Listen to what Fish says. I've always loved this quote. He says, what after all is the difference between a sectarian school which disallows challenges to the divinity of Christ. I mean, that would be Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. Okay, what's the difference between a sectarian school like that and a non-ideological school, a secular one, which disallows discussion of the same question, that is, of Jesus Christ's deity? He says, in both contexts, something goes without saying and something else cannot be said. Christ is not God or he is. There is, of course, a difference. Not, however, between a closed environment in a sectarian school and an open one at the secular school, but between environments that are differently closed. I find the role of faith in that quote to be shouting at me. It's different faiths that are being put forward at those institutions. And I find the role of faith in my knowledge to be so helpful for my thinking and therefore for my writing. Because a lot of my thinking, like yours, I bet, is done in dialogue with other people, whether they know that I'm listening to them or not. And when I pastor people, I find that one of my jobs is to help them think Christianly in their own dialogue with their surrounding culture, whether the culture knows they're listening or not. Those parts of our culture that still insist that science disproves Christian faith, that reason and faith are non-overlapping magisteria, that you know, Athens and Jerusalem, Jerusalem are actually on separate planets, I find that long attention to the role that faith plays in human knowledge has inoculated me against that viewpoint. I, 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 I find I can see what axioms they are assuming. I can see in what or whom does their own faith lie. Knowledge is a moral category. All knowing is either faithful to God or, or it's not. As my professor Leighton Talbert at Bob Jones said, any decision to mistrust God's words is a decision to trust someone else's. 
I'm actually going to quote Stanley Fish again. He makes the same point over and over in so many ways. It's why I love him. I am his biggest redheaded fundamentalist fan. Uh, he says, the philosopher Thomas Nagel makes just that point when he observes that the assumption by anti-creationists that intelligent design could not possibly be true seems less a conclusion reached by scientific method than an article of faith. Can you hear this? Here's a non-Christian person, Stanley Fish, quoting another uh, non-Christian person, Thomas Nagel, the philosopher, who's pointing out that anti-creationism is itself based ultimately on articles of faith. He says, any attempt to remove the label religious and replace it with scientific will be resisted by the arbiters of what science is, who have already made up their collective mind in advance. Now, I don't think it's possible to write clearly without thinking clearly first. So, good thinking, and therefore good writing, has faith in God, and gains skill in seeing others' faith in other things, in other gods. In apologetics with unbelievers and with your own people, you are often exposing when their faith is resting in something other than God's word. And then you're pointing them to faith in God's word. To do this well is to think clearly and to at least pave the way for good writing. Which brings us to the second virtue I want to discuss, hope. Good thinking and writing means hoping all things for others. And we're going to talk about what that means in context. Uh, you don't have to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 because you already know the passages I'm going to bring up, but if you go there, that won't hurt you. It simply isn't true. Let's talk lexical uh, stuff for a minute, lexicographical. It simply is not true that the word hope in the New Testament has a very specific Christian meaning, namely confident expectation. That's one of those little preacher memes that gets repeated over and over again. It, th what I always hear is hope in the, in the New Testament. It means confident expectation, not I hope so. This is called, however, theological lexicography or illegitimate totality transfer in linguistics. It's reading a not entirely wrong, but not entirely right theological idea into uses of a Greek word. This idea just does not fit New Testament usage. Herod hoped to see Jesus perform a miracle in Luke 23. He did not have a confident expectation. The Greeks, the Koine speakers, used the word hope exactly the same way we do. It's usage in context that tells us whether a given instance of hope in the Bible is meant to be a confident expectation or a mere wish. And here's a tip. When Paul talks about a given virtue in the abstract, like faith, hope, and love, he is certainly assuming a Christian understanding of those abstract words. So there are languages in the world which don't have abstract nouns. You can't say faith, hope, and love in these languages. The wonderful book, One Bible, Many Versions by David Brunn, was written by Brunn, who was a missionary Bible translator with now Ethnos, Ethnos 360 to the Lamogai people of New Guinea. They did not have these abstract nouns. We, you have to supply a subject and an object for these abstract nouns in certain languages. So what if we had to do that? What if we had to supply a subject and, a, and an object for hope in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the little verse that I've used to structure this talk? You know the verse, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Who hopes in 1 Corinthians 13? And what do they hope in? Well, think of how context might change the meaning of this word for us in English. I'm constantly making these parallels because language operates the same way in the New Testament as it does in our daily speech and writing. 
if I'm sitting watching the Super Bowl and my lifelong favorite team is playing, if I had one anymore, and my father, who has rooted for this team since before I was born and decked me out in its colors when I was a baby, is sitting watching with me, and if it's the fourth quarter and if the other team is one touchdown ahead and sitting on our one-yard line, poised to score again, and my father says to me, do you think there's any hope? He's implying that we fans of this team are the hopers. We are the subject. And the object of our hope is Super Bowl victory for our team. When Barack Obama made hope a political slogan for his first presidential campaign, I think the implied subjects were all Americans. And the implied object of the hope was a better economic and cultural future for our nation. Okay, so what's the implied context in 1 Corinthians 13? Who's the hoper? What's the thing hoped for? Paul has just mentioned hope in the passage when he says, love hopes all things. And we'll talk about that in a second. But somehow I think when he's in 1313 and he says, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, he's at the highest possible level of abstraction. He's at the 30,000 foot Christian viewpoint because he's picking out these three massive virtues, faith, hope, and love as especially significant. So I think the subject of the hope here just has to be the Christian individually and therefore the Christian church generally. And the object has to be all the things Christians uniquely and ultimately hope for. Final salvation, the redemption of our bodies, vindication on the last day, the complete eradication of the power of sin. So how can Christian hope, that virtue, how can it improve your thinking and writing? I actually want to draw from 1 Corinthians 13's comments about hope to answer this question. Think about when Paul says, love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. I think I have generally taken that to mean the same as believes all things. That is, love believes the best. You know, I hope my opponent is right. I hope the Lord will bring repentance to my opponents in whatever debate or uh, witnessing situation. But I checked with some of our most trusted interpreters, and they felt differently. I was struck by this paragraph from Gordon Fee in his uh, New International Commentary in the New Testament volume. He said, Paul does not mean that love always believes the best about everything and everyone when he says love hopes all things. He says instead, he means that love never ceases to trust God and thus leave justice in God's hands. It is in this sense that it never loses hope that God's justice in the context of God's goodness will yet prevail where there is human fallenness, even grotesque fallenness. I also checked Roy Champa and Brian Rosner in the Pillar New Testament commentary, and they just quoted that paragraph from Fee. <laughs> so think, I think it would be a totally legitimate application of the virtue of hope to say this. Christian hope means we cannot and must not take vengeance. That would be stealing something that God alone owns. What is driving the worst public thinking and writing in our culture? Or to say exactly the same thing, what in the world is happening on Twitter slash x.com? I'll say one thing. People are tweeting as those who have no hope. Specifically, they have no hope that their opponents will ever get their comeuppance. So they get increasingly loud and insistent in their own efforts to give their ideological opponents the vengeful retribution that they so eminently deserve. Both sides do this in any dispute. All sides do this in every dispute. And we bite and devour one another, even as Christians, like crazed, like crazed piranhas who have consumed all the other fish in the river and so turn on their own kind. One of the most disarming things you can do in your thinking and writing 
especially in online discourse, is have eschatological hope that God will get it all right in the end. As N.T. Wright says, he will put things to rights. Rights, he always says, plural. It just calms you down. You don't feel such pressure to get others to heal. I feel especially that Calvinists should be able to calm down because we, we acknowledge that repentance is something that God grants. What an incredible word. And therefore, it's been granted to us. You might do no less work to persuade them, just like you do no less work to evangelize because repentance is something God grants to the unbelievers. But you, you have another hope that the one who saved you can save anybody. You don't get agitated. You're already living by the laws of the future kingdom. I have hope for true Christians, of course, that they will often repent of their errors before death and be corrected like me when they finally know as also they are known. I have hope for lost people, though of a different kind. I have hope that the righteous will be vindicated and the truth and glory of God displayed. I have hope that the wicked who are opposing Christian faith on Twitter will one day be compelled to bow the knee to God. And I have hope that in the end, Pilate will be compelled along with all my debate opponents and yes, myself, to accept the answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? It can be so frustrating to pray to the same God, read the same Bible, and yet disagree with fellow believers insofar as much of our preaching and teaching and emailing, and therefore much of our writing deals with matters of disagreement. It would sure help our writing and thinking to have the eschatological hope that Paul describes in the love chapter. It would both cool us down and heat us up. It would dissipate our anger and fan the flame of our love for the Lord, who is our exceeding great reward. And that, in turn, has a way of helping us love the people to whom we speak and against whom we are compelled to disagree. Faith, hope, now love. Two little exegetical theological thoughts before I talk about love's relationship to good thinking and writing. First, love is the greatest virtue, right? That's why love hopes all things, but hope doesn't love all things. Think about that. Love underlies hope. And faith, I said earlier, is not bedrock, it's close to bedrock. What is bedrock inside us? Love is bedrock. Love underlies faith. Love is the ultimate virtue. On the two love commands hang all the law and the prophets. Love fulfills the law. Our loves, this is an Augustinian point, and therefore I think also a Calvinistic one, our loves drive our beliefs and our hopes. Who hopes for what he sees, Paul asks. The answer is no one. And who hopes for something he doesn't desire? <laughs> In other words, that he doesn't love. Also, no one. Mm. Second little exegetical theological thought before we get into the, some discussion and application. I was reading Gordon Fee. I do appreciate his commentaries. And he suggests in his, uh, the same volume I just quoted earlier, that the reason Paul calls love the greatest of the triad of faith, hope, and love, have you ever wondered that? You know, it's in the great commandments, that's one reason, but it all seems so abstract. I felt this was so helpful. He said the reason Paul says it's the greatest is that faith and hope will one day no longer be needed, but love will endure throughout eternity. And I would add, just as it has existed before time. How do we know that? Who knows the Bible verse, the proof text for the existence of love before the foundation of the world? It's when Jesus says that, 
to the Father. The love that we had before the foundation of the world. My dad, now to some application, my dad used to speak at Christian writers' conferences in the early to mid-1990s. He studied English at the University of Virginia. I did not. But growing up in his home, I always cared about proper speech and writing. It was just natural as the child of an English major. And I was most definitely a self-conscious prig about spelling. Let me just admit it right here. I won every spelling bee at my tiny Christian school, and this mattered to me a little too immensely. I can still remember how my second grade crush, whose name was Elizabeth, misspelled purse, P-U-R-S, purse, and she unknowingly ended any possibility of a future with me. (laughs) I can still see, this is true, I can still see her mom going like this in the audience, and I was doing the same thing internally. (laughs) There is obviously a massive place for learning these mechanics, the rules, grammar and spelling. I think we call this place school. Going back to school is not realistic for most of us. And DMIN programs, to my knowledge, don't tend to have a rigorous writing component. They assume a certain amount of knowledge of those mechanics. I teach at Reformed Baptist Seminary, and I grade now courses. I grade assignments that I gave. Um, they watch my lectures that I gave a couple years ago, and I grade the stuff. And there is a wide range of writing abilities. And sometimes I do end up deciding, this is a good writer, and I'm going to go hard after him to help him improve. And sometimes I do decide good writing is not the next step in growth for this particular student. Let's talk about the ideas. How can you grow in your skill as a written communicator after the age of 25, after which, you know, no one usually learns anything? I think, I think you really, really have to be driven by love. What I learned about the effective speaker as a freshman in college at Bob Jones is true of all effective communicators. The effective speaker has a message to deliver, has a definite purpose in giving that message, and is consumed with the necessity of getting that message across and accomplishing that purpose. What does consumed mean? It means love. The effective speaker realizes that the primary purpose of speech is the communication of ideas and feelings in order to get a desired response. What is a desired response? It's love. What is your heart going for in that moment when you are delivering the the fruits of your written preparation in your sermon? So do you love your people enough to work at further learning on the tools of persuasion? Do you love the truth enough to use those tools without cheating, using rhetorical tricks that the truth would never need to use? I did not understand the value of these rhetorical tools when they were handed to me as a college freshman. I was just too young. How could I? I only came to see their value as I came to love certain truths and as I came to love certain people who needed to believe those truths. Now, I've given very little practical advice in this workshop talk on good thinking and writing, but here are two advices. Have you considered reading up on writing? I recommend Joseph Williams' book, Style, Lessons in Clarity and Grace. There are plenty of writing books out there. I would actually not turn to E.B. White's book, even though he is an excellent writer, because I think he is too much of a prescriptive linguist. Williams talks carefully about the way that writers have to judge the state of the language as it then exists, which, if you know anything about my YouTube channel, is a massive theme in my own thinking. I think it could, could be the case that some 
focused time listening to him will do the same thing that it did for me. I was not an English major, but he caused some pieces to click for me about what it meant to have smooth sentences and smooth paragraphs. That is a practical piece of advice. Here's a second one. Have any of you ever done this or heard anyone doing this? Maybe find an editor who will look over your sermons before you preach them. I think uncareful preachers would never do this, and careful ones think of preaching as such a high and holy task that, I don't know, editing feels inappropriate somehow. But I disagree. One of the best things that I think ever happened to my own writing was not only reading tons of edited prose, as I assume we all do, but writing it, getting edited by competent people. I don't just mean grammar and spelling, although that's helpful. I mean structure and argument. My editor at BJU Press for nine years was a godly and diligent man who's still my friend who made countless helpful suggestions. And my main editor at Logos for something like 200 articles that I had the privilege of writing there was exceptionally adept at catching structural weaknesses. He loved to say, kill your darlings. And he would cut my first three paragraphs in a huge number of articles. He'd say, you keep clearing your throat, clearing your throat. You're not getting to it. He was helping me to win and keep attention without cheating, without those rhetorical tricks I talked about. And I just take that to be another way of saying apt to teach. What does it mean to be able to win and keep attention? It means having the bare minimum of gifting that I think Rick Holland mentioned when he talked about the character of the minister. I've met a writer or two who resented being edited. I did have one coworker long ago in a galaxy far, far away, and he was not a good writer. And in addition to that, he utterly refused to change a syllable. That was really rough. I'm not, I don't think I'm praising myself to say, this has just never made any sense to me. It's not humility that causes me to be willing to be edited. I just feel so much safer when somebody else has looked over my writing to save me from the embarrassment of making errors. I often check humor with my wife in advance as well. <laughs> I love the truth. I love my readers. I want them to get that truth. And I don't want my flubs to get in their way. Why do I manuscript my sermons in the first place? And I am not saying that you have to do what I do. But here's my thinking. I'm going to be real frank here. In my younger years, I sat through literally hundreds of sermons that felt to me like wastes of time. I'm not trying to be a jerk here. I am telling the honest truth. And as my training pr proceeded, I started to fill out the reasons why I had been so frustrated. Even when I was just a graphic design major, had no idea that I'd become some kind of Bible teacher. These preachers, including some who were paid to fly across the country and stand before thousands, apparently couldn't be bothered to do any serious preparation. Okay, there were many who did, clearly, but there were many who didn't, and I noticed. And this frustrated and insulted me. And at a certain point, it started to anger me. You don't want to indulge anger, but I acquired the right to a little anger by sitting through so many of those sermons. <laughs> I determined not to do unto others what they had done unto me. If 100 sheep who have come to feed all sit quietly in front of you with their mouths open, what is wrong with asking someone with sharp eyes to help you look over the grass you're about to feed them to weed out sticks and bugs? Feed Christ's lambs. 
Pre-editing a sermon every week is a heavy burden. Perhaps you don't have volunteers or staff or a spouse who could do this. Maybe find a friend in or out of the church who might do this for you just once a month. Or try doing what my respected friend, Joe Tierpak, that I've known since we were both graphic design majors. Uh, Church Works Media, you might know him. Do what he does. He has very frank discussions with his assistant pastors after nearly every sermon, I believe, where they go over what he or they, depending on who preached, could have done differently. Now, he did this to me (laughs) and for me when I spoke at his church, and it was bracing. It was a little difficult, but it was wonderful. And I have not forgotten the very trenchant criticisms that Joe delivered in complete love. How else can you improve? If all the law and the prophets hang on love, then there is practically no end to the applications that rightly ordered loves have on thinking and writing. I've just given you a couple, but let me give another. And here I appeal again to Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think. I told you this, this talk would kind of bulge at the seams. Jacobs said, while we're clearing away misconceptions about thinking, which he does throughout his book, excellent little book, Uh, Let's tackle another pervasive misconception about thinking, he says, that in order to think well, one must be strictly rational, and being rational requires the suppression of all feelings. He says, no, just as we do not think for ourselves, but rather think with others, so too we think in active feeling response to the world and in constant relation to others, or we should. Only something that complete, relational, engaged, honest, truly deserves to be called thinking. The most important virtue for all the Christian life and therefore for all of thinking and writing is arguably, and I, uh, and, and I did argue this in a dissertation, not cognitive, but affective. It is, again, love. And it's notable that where we like to say that person let his emotions overrule his reason, the Bible does not talk this way. The Bible does not treat us the way the faculty psychology, it's called, does, as if there are separable little beings up in the control center of our selves called mind, will, and emotion, and each of them is kind of fighting one another for the control panel, kind of like that movie uh, Inside Out. The Bible treats us as what Anthony Hokema calls psychosomatic unities, as body-soul persons. The Bible does not command our emotions or command our thinking or command our will. We do have these things. These are things that persons have. The Bible commands us. I draw this from John Frame. Ultimately, to think and write well, you must have rightly ordered loves. Now, many non-Christians do think and write well. I don't deny this. But those places where they're serving truth and their neighbor are places where, by God's common grace, God is allowing the publicans to love those who love themselves. They are suppressing the truth about God that's evident in his creation while stealing from his creation truths whose ownership they won't acknowledge. So they ultimately end up serving false gods and stating untruths and doing poor service for their neighbors because they do not love the God who is truth. In the final analysis, they are twisting the marvelous human tools of reason and writing in the service of something other than God. And this must not be us. If we want to think and write well, we have to love God and neighbor. Let me end by picking up the theme of my opening illustration, forgiveness, and tying it back to this greatest virtue in my little talk, love. A number of my friends over the years have praised very highly the book, The Count of Monte Cristo, and I will not take a raise of hands for how many 
have read and loved that book. It's by Alexander Dumas. It's a famous 19th century novel. And its great length is rivaled only by your expository sermon series. (laughs) I picked it up, therefore, with some expectation. I really could be wrong, but I hated it because it seemed to me to be composed mainly of cheap tricks for creating a state of moral exception, for making sure the protagonist could acquire an anger that would provide readers a vicarious gasp and then a vicarious thrill. The book was kind of cool while it was a escape from prison story. I like that part. But I just could not find any delight in it once it became a sprawling set of vendettas that were performed by a practically superhumanly rich man who always accurately guessed the next actions of his opponents, those people against whom he was trying to perform his vendetta. And that was about half this huge tome. I read the whole thing, but I just kept thinking, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Who knows what book of the Bible I just quoted? Leviticus. That's what Jesus is quoting in Matthew 22 when he quotes the great commandment. And isn't this so interesting? I had never noticed this until I sat down to prepare this talk. The specific context of the love command originally in Leviticus is that of setting up a contrast between love and one of its opposites, vengeance, bearing a grudge. The opposite of that sin, the antidote to it is the virtue of love. In a day when you can acquire anger with a click, literally moments after you awaken in the morning, we need love to carry us to good thinking and writing or else. Thank you. I am done a little early. Do we have any comments or questions? We have plenty of writers in here. Very happy to have a little discussion in here. Comments, questions? Yes. Can you state the title of the book I'm writing? His name is Williams. Joseph Williams, Lessons in Clarity and Grace. He also composed the writing instruction for the um, the Turabian Guide. Oh, I'm forgetting. There's a, like there's a Turabian guide to writing or something that's different from the Turabian rules. You're nodding like I'm talking about something real. I don't think I've forgotten. Yeah, he was really helpful. He just I I um I didn't have really specific training in writing, uh, and that is what I needed to just kind of get me over the hump into realizing what I was doing wrong. It's a big value on uh, Amazon. Ninety four bucks. Really? Well, okay. He's got. So, so where is, where, where is it's a textbook, so there are multiple editions. That's probably an older edition. The reason is, I'm certain there are cheaper editions of that book. And it used to be called Style 10 Lessons in Clarity and Grace. You got Mark, you know? Yeah, you'll, you'll be able to find it somewhere on there. Yeah. Yeah. Who are some of the thinkers or theologians that have influenced your Christian epistemology? Oh, that's an easy one. I quoted him, John Frame. So his book, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God, I very nearly went uh, into that book in some detail here in this talk. Just wasn't sure how much space I'd have. But I really love Frame. I run his website, and that's why I run it, because I, I really love him. Um, he is very biblically oriented, 
And I feel like he has a gift that I find almost only, the, the only other person I can think of who's like this is C.S. Lewis, where I feel like the prose is so simple and clear. Um, that actually, to me, communicates a greater intelligence. Uh, I, I think Frame is someone you can hand to people in your church as well. Although I will say it took me four attempts to get through that book, and I don't know why. It just had to come at the right time in my life. His Theology of Lordship series, of which it is a part, I think it's the first book in that series, is uh, excellent to have. And yeah, I would send you right to that book. I mean, to me, that's like the most important book outside the Bible that I've ever read, The Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. Yep, Dave? Would you put any parameters on somebody who wants to write about something? Let's say they start a website and they just want to speak and they claim love as their great motivation, but perhaps they're hitting controversial topics and maybe they're not the person yeah. who sounds as loving as they might think. Or Right. So let's say you have your average Joe who wants to start a blog. Would you give any parameters to the expression of love through writing? Yeah, um, and you're. I think you're kind of assuming he's part of your church and you're trying to pastor him. Is that where you're just saying in general? Oh, okay. Um, well, let me make it a little more concrete by putting that situation on it, if you don't mind. Because I, I, mean, I think that's the answer. Who else is going to talk to him? Uh, I have thought for a while, and I admit this has been very difficult to work out in real-life pastoral ministry. I can't say it worked out all that great when I tried it. But if the New Testament and Old Testament, too, has tons to say about speech, right? And therefore, I think about any communication, I would have to think that applies— um, and if it talks about tail-bearing, and if it talks about uh, division, contention, and strife being works of the flesh, and if it talks about, in Proverbs, answering a matter before you hear it, on the flip side, if it says a soft answer turns away wrath, and we have church members who are going on Facebook and exercising their free speech rights and being jerks, is that not a fit place for pastoral intervention? And uh, without giving details, um, I was in a situation where I really felt the leadership I was a part of needed to address a particular problem, but the leadership as a whole could not agree. That was one of the most difficult things that I faced in that particular uh, church ministry. And of course, I, I can't and won't give specifics, but I've been thinking about that a lot. So I feel like there are lots of Bible passages about the tongue, and it is appropriate for a pastor to take that to someone. And how what could be more delicate than to tell someone you really don't know what you're talking about. But um, there you go, pastors. Have at it, you know. <laughs> that might be part of your shepherding task for someone. Um, and maybe, just maybe, they, they would listen. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, do you have any thoughts yourself you'd want to share? Maybe just a follow-up question. When, when does somebody cross the threshold where you say that person needs to be an authority in talking about these topics? Um, that social media has given us this brand new situation in the whole history of the world. I mean, it's analogous certainly to um, uh, to the printing press, right? Where there were pamphlet wars that would you know break out in Britain, and we hear about them. The Puritans would do these things, and uh, you know they had a similar situation where anybody could you know do that. There was some level of gatekeeping just by the expense necessary, but then a more wealthy person, even if he wasn't a good speaker or shouldn't be speaking, you know, he could get his message out there. Um, so it's not as if, as, as if this is brand new. I think what's new is just quite how easy it is. Uh, and I've struggled th with this myself. Like, I have a YouTube channel. I talk a lot about this controversial issue, Bible translation. Nobody elected me. And so what, what do people do in those situations? 
I think my natural feeling was to reach out to my pastors, and I did. And I said, I want to be accountable. Um, I also have myself an informal ministry board. Several of those folks are pastors. I messaged them last night. I asked them for advice on a regular basis. We have some models for how this sort of thing can be done, analogous to missionaries going out onto the field. We've got some missionaries in this room. Um, they are accountable to people. If you don't have a local church situation where you're already accountable because you're like a missionary, you're starting your own church, you're still looking for that. And that would be one means of counsel that I would use for this person. I would say, did you seek out the kind of authority that every trustworthy speaker has? They're connected to institutions, and in the Christian church, it's the church that they ought to be connected to. And if not, why not? Are you afraid of what the authorities might say and how they might restrain you? And should you take a lesson from that? I hope that's helpful. I feel like there's more that you've got in your mind. Is there something you want to no, share? That's okay. actually exactly what I was looking for. Great. Anybody else? Yeah, back there. If you are going to improve your own mind and your own writing and your own speaking by reading correctly and expanding your vocabulary, etc., etc., then is it more important when you get to the writing stage that you speak on the level of your reader? So basically, if I could say dumbing down your expertise, yeah. or is it more important that you write up to your level at present and force your reader to come up to that they're right. improving themselves. Yeah, um, that is an excellent question, and I have very directly faced it. And I have, two, I have different answers depending on what circumstance I'm in. When I preach in church, those people, it's not their fault that I'm in front of them. <clears throat> I need to meet them where they are. And I was an outreach pastor for five and a half years. We bust functionally illiterate people into the church. We're trying to build a bridge into a community a minority community that was distant from us culturally. We're trying to get them to cross the bridge into our church. And here I am, a PhD student, teaching functionally, functionally illiterate people. I absolutely loved it. We used the New International Reader's Version, which is a simplified Bible translation. That was a really big step forward for us. And I loved the challenge of, I wouldn't call it dumbing down. I'm not criticizing your uh, phrasing of the question, but I felt like just making it appropriate, putting the cookies on the appropriate shelf. And functionally illiterate did not mean they couldn't read anything. It meant, in that case, they'd never read a whole book that I could tell, and they read haltingly. So the NARV, they could actually read out loud. Um, when I am put in front of people who, you know, who aren't choosing to come hear me, I feel an obligation to meet them where they are. That's what love demands, the virtue of love. However, when I'm creating my own platform, which is what I typically do with a book or with articles or with YouTube videos, I feel like actually for me, the most efficient thing to do is to talk in the way that comes naturally to me and whatever level that is. And I think you just heard it. That's my natural level. Um, that's going to attract a certain audience and repel others. That's fine. I feel like the two different circumstances demand different things. Um, and I think I can love my audience in both settings by, by uh, going at a different level. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, let's try Tim first and then the guy behind him. So, there's a lot of, obviously, skilled and popular Christian writers out there. Who would you recommend that is both skilled and virtuous? Oh, at writing? You know... Pastors that write, or just person named out there that specifically we would say are exemplifying yeah. what you view as the... You know, the, a couple names that come right to the top. Alan Jacobs, 
who I read very faithfully for many years. I kind of go through binges, and I'm kind of off him now, but um, he's, he's got a great book on origin, called Original Sin. Um, he's a unique writer because he's coming at theology actually from an English perspective. Um, but he models those things and does so in his online writing. Kevin DeYoung, I feel like he consistently models graciousness. And when he wrote against Beth Allison Barr, um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, right? And she came back at him really hard, as did Scott McKnight and everybody else on the evangelical left. I thought, you guys are picking on the wrong person. Anybody who knows him at all knows that he is gracious. Did he mistake and misunderstand something in her book? Maybe. Um, but it was a major mistake, I think, for, for Beth to come back so angry when he clearly does not operate like that. And he, what he's actually skilled at as well, he has a couple posts, I think, where he talks about you know four different groups among the Reformed. Um, he's very good. Andy Nacelli can do this kind of thing too, where he's just laying out the options. Here are the major viewpoints, and he presents them in a gentle and descriptive way that doesn't make people feel like he's mistreating them. Um, another person, oh, it's going to come back to me here, Don Carson. I feel like he does this. I read his book on, um, now I'm the kind of the rare conservative who's not as concerned about so-called gender-inclusive language and Bible translation as most others are. And one of the reasons is that I read Carson's book. And that argument was so beautiful. <laughs> he lays it out so clearly. I think that clear thinking is itself an act of grace and love that I constantly find in Carson. Um, I mean, give me more time and I'm sure I can think of more. And does anybody else want to shout out names? I mean, I hope I agree with you. What other names come, <laughs> come to your mind? Anybody? Be bold. He's written more originally, I think, recently than he has over his whole career. I've really grown to love Tim Challey's yeah. distillations. The more he writes originally, the more I really like him. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's a gracious guy. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Okay, I don't know your name, sir, behind Jacob. Tim. Yeah, Jacob. So, uh, Ben Edwards mentioned a book that you wrote, just curious, that for you to share more about the King James Study Bible. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> you had me confused. I had the King James Study Bible as a kid. Anyway. So, I think you just made me aware in the session, but yes, oh, okay. he was talking about a book that you had written. Yes, I wrote... Okay. Um, he, if that's what he said, I did miss that. Um, if that's what he said, I have a book called Authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. And it's short. And that was one where I did try to aim it a little lower so I could be appropriate for the audience of uh, folks that I was going for. Um, and, you know, in a way, I, I kind of, well, I actually have to credit my wife. I would read to her my initial attempts at putting that book together. And I really distinctly recall that the deal is in my home, we're going to bed, she gets a back rub, and I get to read to her. Uh, so she said, she said, uh, that is too combative. I started off in a combative way, and I, I just, it just hadn't occurred to me. I actually started with a scene of a debate. And um, that advice, along with others uh, from the publisher at Lexham Press, actually, really helped me realize, okay, how can I... How can I structure this rhetorically? Okay, one of the tools of, of rhetoric that, that I, I talked about in the talk. Um, I always want to, here's, here's my Calvinism coming out too. I always actually want to give as much to my opponent as I can because I recognize total depravity means not that everything I do is sinful or that everything my opponent does is sinful. I believe in common grace as I acknowledge. So even King James only, however much they might frustrate me, they're onto something good. And I saw it as a teenager. Um, they're trying to preserve something that's valuable. 
And my, my uh, publisher, who's now my friend, Brandon Ellis, he now works for Modern Reformation, he said, start by talking about the things we lose as the King James ceases to be the common standard. And I thought, that's brilliant. And I can't tell you how many former King James onlyists, and actually still some people who are King James only, got a message from a guy today. Um, they're saying, thank you. Even though I disagree with you, you were gracious to me, and you're helping me read the King James with greater understanding. Real briefly, that book, the whole point is, it comes out of my, my question, my epistemological question. Did I sin to believe my King James only pastor when I was 15 and he told me that West Cotton Hoard are bad dudes and I shouldn't trust modern translations? And I thought, I can't think how I sinned. I had no way of checking out what he said. But I was wrong. So how, how do I work that out? And I thought, well, there was a Bible passage that I knew and that I wasn't applying. And that was 1 Corinthians 14, edification requires intelligibility. I knew the King James was written in English that was no longer fully intelligible, that was not accessible. I didn't have it as clear then as I do now, but I failed to apply that passage. That was my moral error. And that is where the King James only world can be held morally responsible. Most of them do not have the capacity to check out the arguments about New Testament textual criticism because it's all written in Greek and they don't read Greek. Can they be held morally responsible for that? Uh, maybe the leaders, some, but the people, I don't think so. So I said, let's talk only about English. And I said, I have a one-page spread where I explain why I shouldn't have to talk about textual criticism, why we, why we can set that aside because you can use the New King James and Modern English version and you can have your TR and read it too. And that, that approach has proven uh, by God's grace, it's been wonderful to see, to be fruitful and effective. I don't know exactly what time I started. I feel like we're coming right up at the end here. Okay, any last, I feel like one other person had a hand up. Okay, we won't stop everyone going out. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity to focus on faithfulness. I pray that you would make the, um, I, would say, I would pray your kingdom come, Lord. May the rule of Christ spread. And would you use us as your tools to be effective thinkers and writers in all the situations to which you've called us, uh, male and female. In Jesus' name, amen.